Hello, and welcome to the Page to Pixel podcast. I'm your host, Reed Jolin, and join with me is not Jeremy. Jeremy is on sabbatical for the next little while since he is working on school stuff and all that other good stuff. I know in the last episodes we had done on the Elder Scrolls, we had talked about kind of moving on to my favorite franchise of all time, Castlevania, but deciding to continue to put a pause on that and take a sort of related turn into another series that has become, well, not series, but I guess gameplay style. It has become very near and dear to me in the last five, six years, and that is Bloodborne. So, in this kind of special episode, and kind of what I'm hoping that we do more of these episodes, judging on uh, how well this one goes, is my friend Caleb and my friend Joe. So, do you gentlemen want to say hello to the nice people out there? Shoot first, Caleb. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Uh, This is Caleb coming in live from San Francisco. Uh, Huge Bloodborne fan. Super excited to be on. Thanks, Reid. You bet. And Joe? Yeah, this is Joe um, reporting live from uh, Japan. So this was this was a really fun thing for us to kind of coordinate because, you know, I kind of asked you guys about a month and a half ago to do this. And, you know, it's been, you know, all steam ahead with it. And I've been super stoked with it. But, like, the, the realization of figuring out the time zone differences was like, oh, shit. <laughs> we have to kind of get this all coordinated. But, you know, it's like I mentioned to you guys off recording that i'm coming home from thanksgiving and you know i get home today at like six o'clock and i'm just like excited like super bowl sunday like hell yeah i get to talk about this finally so <laughs> i'm super ex- I'm, I'm beyond stoked to have you guys on for this because i know it's something that both of you are, are really passionate about maybe one of you more so than the other but that's totally great we're we're um i'm just super stoked to have you guys on board for for this hell um, yeah but, but that being said yes like i mentioned uh, we are talking about Bloodborne, which um, is a game created uh, by From Software. Uh, it was released originally in March of 2015, uh, exclusively on the PlayStation 4, and it has not appeared on any other system, including PC, suck at PC players. Um, <laughs> I've, I've recently played it. I mean, I've, I have had a friend who bought it um, when it did come out, but, you know, it wasn't any it wasn't a franchise I was super familiar with at the time because I was largely turned off by the stories of the difficulty and the, I don't know, I guess the community that I heard kind of negative things about, but over time <laughs> I played some of the other Soulsborne games, including Dark Souls 3, Dark Souls 1, Demon Souls, uh, and Elden Ring. And it's really quickly become one of my favorite franchises, favorite styles uh, in the last few years. So um, I'm really, you know, I played it for the first time finally uh, a couple of weeks ago um, and finished it last week so I'm excited to kind of talk about that Um, so let's start with Joe Uh, let's talk about some of your first experiences and early impressions maybe of Bloodborne yeah um, it goes all the way back to 2016 that was you know roughly six months or so after the game had come out Um, I had bought a PS4 uh, November 2015 to play Fallout 3 and The Witcher 3 or Fallout 4 rather, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I heard rumor of Bloodborne and I had no idea about Dark Souls really. So anyway, I ended up buying it on a whim and uh, it kind of shook me to my core. Like I was literally afraid of Bloodborne the first time I played it. Um, I had not, like conniptions about fighting Gascoin. That dude rocked my world. Um, 
And I was experiencing all this alone because everyone that I knew had not really played it. And so I was just like, I was completely offline. I didn't even have internet set up in my house at that time. And I was just like, what's that? What attracted you to it in the first place then if you had no experience with the other? Um, That's a good question. There were vague, just like, there, there were vague glimpses into it on the internet that I had seen through Twitter um, via producers that I really liked. Okay. And they, they were kind of tweeting about it and stuff. I was like, okay, what's this game? And um, that's, it was just kind of instinctual that, okay, this sounds like a game for me, basically. Okay, perfect. And, mm-hmm. since, and after you kind of got over your initial fears, it just kind of opened a new world to you? Totally. Um, I mean, I think with our first From Software game, we can say that it's just kind of fighting for our life. We're not so concerned about the story because we all know how cryptic as hell these stories can get. So we're just like fighting for our life to see as much as we can see. And that was me playing Bloodborne the first time. And then, you know, years and years later, I'm still uncovering the story. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah, that's great. And then, Caleb, what about your experiences then? Yeah, um, you know, I'm glad that uh, Joe is on this podcast um, with me because uh, he certainly (laughs) is the reason that I got into it. Uh, I actually did give it a stab in 2016, but it's something probably just worth glossing over. I played it for um, maybe a day and then returned it because I was like, nope, too hard. And uh, it took me... uh, (laughs) It, it, you know, it, it took me up until, uh, remember the pandemic? Uh, I played in January of 2021. Uh, that was my New Year's resolution, uh, entering that time frame, uh, coming off some certain books that I had read, and I was uh, fatigued from the, uh, the war zone and other things uh, going on in gaming uh, during the 2020 year. Uh and uh, it was, it was the best choice I could have made. Um, you know, it is probably still uh, the hardest game I've played. I actually think the Dark Souls games might be harder, but when you're dropped into a FromSoft game and, and your first one ever is Bloodborne, that experience, no matter which game it is, is probably going to be the hardest game you've ever played because um, it's it's For jarring. Sure. At least once I played Dark Souls and uh, and and the rest of FromSoft games, I had had my skin thickened a little bit, um, even if the gameplay is is really different. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, from there, I was off. Uh, you know, unlike Joe, I didn't have to do it completely alone. He helped me through uh, some serious parts of that game that we'll probably get into later. Sure. Yeah, and I, I had mentioned the the ones that I had kind of beaten since I started getting into this whole realm, that being Dark Souls 3 being my first one, uh, and then I'm trying to think of the order. Dark Souls 3, DS1, Demon Souls, Elder Ring, and now Bloodborne, so that's what, five? What other ones have you guys beaten of the Soulsborne series? I've done them all. Um, Demon Souls is my least played, but it because it's my least played, it's actually like almost my favorite one. Because I haven't played it to death, you know? Mm-hmm. But I guess the order was... I did Bloodborne. 
and midway through, I put it down to try out Dark Souls 2 because at that time, Dark Souls 3 had not come out. And I was getting hyped about that. I was like, you know, I'm feeling more fantasy because basically it was an excuse because Bloodborne scared the shit out of me. Right. Um, so I went down to the more idyllic and comfortable fantasy realm of Dark Souls 2. And then I did all Dark Souls 3, went back to Bloodborne, went back to Dark Souls 2, and then uh, went to Demon Souls, and then, of course, Sekiro and Elden Ring after that. Okay. Caleb? I uh, finished Bloodborne, and uh, I actually went to Dark Souls 1 um, next, which, uh, you know, by a lot of my Discord friends at the time, and, and Joe included, it got a lot of uh, interesting choice uh, responses, but... <laughs> Uh, I think everyone like, predicted the natural Dark Souls 3 transition uh, just yeah. because it was the newest. And, and I think we're, we can all agree that up to that point until Elden Ring, at least, probably the best gameplay. Um, but uh, I did not finish Dark Souls. In fact, I still have uh, my furthest character in the Darkroot Garden. Um, very underleveled. Uh, still waiting. <laughs> he's hanging out there. I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll check on him soon, maybe after this pod. But uh, I actually jumped over to Dark Souls 3, um, and it was honestly because uh, a couple of mutual friends that we have were uh, deciding to give the game a try. So it was like, well, I guess I have this one opportunity to play co-op with them, so I, I, I better do it. Um, and I did beat that. Uh, I have not attempted Sekiro yet. Uh, I'm a little bit afraid. It's tough. No. <laughs> Uh, that is a journey that you have no choice but to do on your own. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously I've played Elden Ring and, uh, you know, we'll probably have a whole separate reunion pod just for that one. So I'll I'm save sure. my comments. It's worthy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I my first experiences with Bloodborne, again, I did not, you know, when it came out, my friend had bought it and I watched her kind of play through the first couple areas. Um, and that game does just throw you to the meat grinder. It really does. Like the... As you know, the first I was really turned off because you kind of enter the you enter what's it, old Yarnum? Sorry, what's the what's the central central central, yeah. central Yarnum. and you're just getting attacked by mobs in the street. There's werewolves, and I'm like, th- if this is the beginning of the game, like I can't imagine what the middle and end portions of the game are going to be. But once I actually <laughs> started playing it myself, you know that area is just kind of a, it is really a testing point because you are you don't have access to a lot of weapons yet. You're relatively under leveled. You know, you don't have a lot of options available other than just kind of grind through it. Um, so that's what really kind of turned me off initially. And, you know, the style more action based versus kind of parry defense move. Um, I don't mm-hmm. want to say it turned me off, but like, just like the, the, the frantic nature of it kind of turned me off. Like, wow, this is going to make my blood pressure just, you know, triple fold spike so uh but as i've as i've as i played it you know it's once you kind of get in the flow of it and again all of the soulsborne games they have this they all have their own interesting play styles like you they have their own feels right it's like wearing different i don't know it's like wearing different shoes they all do the same thing in a way but yeah. there's a different feel to each pair i guess you could say mm-hmm. but uh unless you guys have any other just general quips about the you know intro to this game i guess we can talk about the plot then if you want to sure yeah, let's sure. get into it before we get too insightful and deep dive um i think caleb and i are just going to kind of read through the basic plot line uh again as joe had mentioned a lot of these Soulsborne games are very very uh nebulous and uh ambiguous in terms of how the 
plot points are kind of constructed. I know there's a lot of YouTubers out there that kind of make a living um, sort of piecing all of the pieces together. But, uh, and sometimes they do get, get kind of put up online on the wikias, um, on Wikipedia and stuff like that. So I think what Caleb and I are going to do right now is read what Wikipedia has offered to us as the plot of Bloodborne. Um, and then after that, we're going to kind of digest it and kind of spit it back out based upon our own experiences and Joe's uh, deep dive into some of the lore and inspirations and stuff, which I'm excited <laughs> to get to. So without further ado, Caleb, if you're ready, let's jump into the plot. All right. So here is the plot, um, according to Wikipedia, for the game of Bloodborne. So uh, Caleb and I are going to be alternating as we kind of go through this, but I will get us started. So the player character, a hunter, is being operated on by an old man who explains that he is performing a blood transfusion to allow him to sign a contract, mentioning a mysterious condition referred to as pale blood. He warns the hunter that they will go on a strange journey that may seem like a bad dream. The hunter blacks out and awakens as a large, flesh-torn beast rises from the floor and menaces them. A sudden fire forces the beast's retreat, and then little creatures, messengers, crawl over the hunter as they black out again. After the player completes character creation, the hunter awakens at an operating table in a different clinic in Yarno. The hunter finds their first lantern, which when lit, transports them to a spectral realm called the Hunter's Dream, where they encounter Garman, an elderly wheelchair-using man who provides advice, and the doll, a living doll who assists the player in leveling up. Garman explains that to obtain the blood they seek and escape the dream, they must hunt down the beast raging through Yarnum and halt the source of the plague. While traveling central Yarnum, the hunter is told to seek out the healing church because of its connection to blood ministration, which is linked to the plague. The hunter encounters Father Gascoigne, who seeks to kill them to prevent them from transitioning into a beast, but becomes a monster himself. The hunter moves through the cathedral ward and enters the Grand Cathedral, where they encounter Vicar Amelia, now a massive beast. The hunter comes into contact with an artifact, the skull of a beast that bids them to visit Bergenworth, only accessible through the Forbidden Woods. Arriving at Bergenworth after defeating the Shadows of Yarnum, the hunter slays Rom, a cosmic kin. Running through a lot of things right there, but I'm going to comment on that later, so go ahead, Caleb. <laughs> With Rom's death, the hunter gains access to a higher degree of perception and sees Queen Yarnum, an ancient being from the dead civilization who supposedly bore Mergo, the source of the nightmare. With their new perception, the hunter can venture to the previously hidden village of Yahargul, where the new, now visible Great Ones reside to be researched and worshipped by the school of the Mensis. The scholars sought to build a vessel for a Great One, known as the One Reborn. After defeating it, the player accesses the spectral realm called the Nightmare of Mensis, where they discover the insane head of the scholars, Mikolash. After killing him, the player encounters Mergo and their guardian. After slaying Mergo's wet nurse and letting Mergo die, the game's final phase is initiated. When the hunter returns to the hunter's dream, Gehrman offers to return them to the waking world in the morning. At this point, three different endings are possible depending on the player's actions. So choosing to accept Gehrman's offer results in the Yarman sunrise ending. This is where Gehrman uses his scythe to behead the hunter who awakens in Yarnum as the sun rises. In the hunter's dream, the doll bids the hunter farewell and prays that they live happily, having escaped the nightmare. Declining Garman's offer unlocks one of two endings. So the second ending, honoring wishes, is the default ending in this case. 
To prevent the hunter from being trapped in the dream, Garmin battles them. After Garmin is defeated, a great one known as the Moon Presence arrives and embraces the hunter, binding them to the hunter's dream. The doll is seen pushing the hunter, now sitting in Garmin's wheelchair, remarking that a new hunt will begin, signifying that the hunter has taken Garmin's place as the caretaker of the dream. Throughout the game, the player can find umbilical cords, formed as the result of Great Ones trying to reproduce with humans as a surrogate. If the player consumes three third umbilical cords before refusing Garmin's offer, the childhood's beginning ending is unlocked. After, defeating Garmin, uh, after Garmin is defeated and the Moon Presence appears, the hunter resists and fights it. Upon defeating the Moon Presence, the hunter is transformed into an infant Great One and is taken by the doll. And now Caleb is going to talk a little bit about, we're going to alternate here, about the Old Hunters DLC, which is a, I don't want to say necessarily, is it a continuation of the story? Uh, Joe, can we just pause? Is that a continuation of the story or is it taking place during the main events? It's, it's completely vital and it's a kind of a reframing, not reframing, but it's a, it's insight into what you experience in the main game. Okay. It's, okay. A, it's the history. Yeah. Oh, I got it. Okay. Go mm-hmm. ahead, Caleb. After discovering an item called Eye of the Blood Drunk Hunter, the player learns of the Hunter's Nightmare, where hunters are cursed to wander drunk with blood. While traveling through Yarnum, the player is pulled into the Hunter's Nightmare, populated by both beast and long-craved hunters, by a lesser amygdala. The player can meet Simon the Harrowed Hunter, who tells them that the Nightmare serves as a prison for hunters, who have succumbed to madness and their scourge. Simon can assist the player throughout their travels. Sorry, one second. <laughs> no, you're fine. The player first visits the Nightmare Church, where they encounter and kill the first church hunter, Ludwig the Holy Blade, now a horse-like beast known as Ludwig the Accursed. After the battle, the player can either tell the dying Ludwig what has become of the church in Yarnum, or let him die believing that Yarnum has defeated the curse. The player can also kill the founder of the healing church, Lawrence, the first Vicar, after finding him on an altar in the nightmare version of the Grand Cathedral, now transformed into a burning cleric beast. The player continues to the research hall, where Simon reveals that to find the secret of the nightmare, the player must reach the astral clock tower and kill Lady Maria another of the first hunters and one of Garmin's students. After fighting their way through the research hall, the hunter encounters and kills the living failures who reside in the Luminwood Garden in front of Maria's clock tower. Upon defeating Maria, the player reveals the secret she was protecting, the ruins of a fishing hamlet that had been pulled into the nightmare and its inhabitants transformed into grotesque fish-like monsters. While exploring the village, the player can come across a mortally wounded Simon, who then gives the player a key and his weapon and pleads for the player to end the nightmare. The player discovers that the hamlet is the origin of the nightmare, the, res- the result of a curse placed upon the Bergenwith scholars and their hunter subordinates, who tortured and massacred the ha- hamlet's inhabitants in their quest for knowledge. As the player continues through the hamlet, they eventually discover the beached corpse of Kos, a great one from the sea, infant great one, and source of the nightmare. The orphan of Kos emerges from the corpse's womb and attacks the player out of blind terror. After its defeat, the creature's phantom retreats to its dead mother's side, and, upon being laid to rest, the hunter's nightmare ends. And that is the plot of Bloodborne and the Old Hunter's DLC. 
as per the Wikipedia. So, as we were reading that, Joe, how was your reaction? Is that pretty fair, or is it uh, not enough? I think because it's so dense, I mean, there's just so much to take in. We would almost have to pick through it piece by piece, paragraph by paragraph. Um, Through your reading, I did notice actually some objective mistakes. So, maybe we can just go back and maybe that could be like our springboard. The Wikipedia summary can be our springboard for our conversation, perhaps. Yeah, for sure. So, why don't you get us started with like what's... Let's actually, let's pause here and let's kind of talk about some of the um, maybe kind of background and plot and themes and some of the inspirational side of this before we kind of get too deep dive. So um, just based upon the game and how it looks, I will say, just going back to our previous conversation about our first impressions and, and experiences with the game, I will say that out of all of the games I've probably ever played, this game probably has the best atmosphere I've ever played. Um, especially in the terms of like the slow development, because the slow development from you know just this gothic horror to this sort of Lovecraftian Cthulhu style horror, um, this transition it's kind of gradual. You know, sort of see um, things kind of dwelling more and more into madness. Uh, my first experiences, like I said, were only in the first beginning parts of the game, and so I never saw anything beyond people turning into werewolves and stuff like that. And that's what I thought the basis of the game was. Like, there's some blood curse turning people into werewolves and animals and beasts and stuff like that. But as you kind of uncover the plot, as things sort of start to make themselves a little bit more apparent, you sort of see things physically and sort of metaphorically become more and more um, non-Euclidean, so to speak, Um, a lot more Lovecraftian and cosmic. And that's some of my favorite styles of horror. Um, The the architecture of this, I know, is really inspired a lot by, um, like, Central and Eastern Europe, like the Czech Republic, Romania, stuff like that. Um, so I just love, you know, the environments themselves. Um, other, other, uh, I know, Joe, we had talked off pod for a while about some of the other themes and inspirations that you've kind of noted about the game. Yeah, well, going off first what you said, um, I love what this game did to subvert the audience's expectations as far as gothic horror. And by subverting is what I mean is that it seems that cosmic horror is the foundation of the gothic horror in this game. And nothing like that has ever really been done before. A good example is, you know, we've all heard of silver bullets killing werewolves. That's just kind of a a standard trope. But in this game, it's quicksilver bullets and on first glance you're like whatever they're silver bullets werewolves okay been here done that but you, you take apart what quicksilver is it's mercury right we all know mercury and the i don't want to get too deep on mercury because it's a whole rabbit hole but basically the corruption in the blood the blood curse is stemming from blood of these godlike beings called great ones and of course, if you've ever read Lovecraft, you kind of have a, an idea of what a great one is, but it's basically an alien-like being that is a god that can exist on different planes and in sometimes uh, the, is the very cosmos itself. So basically, this whole idea of silver bullets is taken so far you know, for like a literary uh, 
explosion in your mind. People say lorgasm. (laughs) It really, really is. (laughs) Um, What else can I say? Uh, You were, we, you kind of made some notes about like Shinto and Buddhist concepts being present. Oh man, it's a, it's a whole thing. So yeah. So going off of my notes here, the inspiration. So obviously we said HP Lovecraft um, the gothic horror is straight up, it can be literary gothic horror. You know, we're thinking Mary Shelley, uh, Frankenstein, we're thinking Bram Stoker, Dracula. Um, going off of what I was saying about subverting gothic horror, um, the vampires in this game, quote unquote vampires, are just beings that are have a, a form of the blood curse that stems still from the Great Ones. It's all connected to that old blood. Um, but they are kept alive by this highly concentrated, corrupted blood. And that's what makes them undying. Okay, so it's not like the typical, okay, there's just vampires in this universe. No, they all have a source, and it's all the blood. Hence, Bloodborne. Um, what was I going to say? Going off of that, there's a very important film... It's called The Brotherhood of the Wolf. And excuse me, I don't know the French uh, director's name. You'll just have to look it up. I I should have included that in my notes. But um, in an interview, um, Miyazaki, (laughs) you know, we've gone this far without actually saying the man's name. Yes. Right? Let's give a brief. Let's clear the air. Let's let's give a moment of silence for Miyazaki (laughs) Hidetaka. Um, He is the mastermind of... Not only this game, but all of the quote-unquote Soulsborne games. He's the main writer. Um, He's also, I think, technically the CEO of From Software at this point in time, too. So, he's the boss man. So, Christoph um, Gans is the director of Brotherhood of the Wolf, uh, just to point that out. Thank you. Yep. Um, And actually, I had just watched that my first time a couple days ago. Um, And... While I would say conceptually, um, of course, there are some parallels to Bloodborne, I would say more so visually, it's an inspiration. Uh, For example, the Hunter attire is largely based off of um, what is seen in that movie. Reed had mentioned uh, Buddhism and Shintoism, which are the two main religions in Japan. And here's the thing about Bloodborne is that it has a Western skin, and on the surface, visually, you're like, oh, this this is very Western, right? It's a Victorian period, uh, Gothic horror. These are all Western uh, concepts, right? Right, and I think I mentioned that to you. Like, if you didn't know that the FromSoft games are Japanese, like, because there's a lot of, you know, there's, like, the, the fantasy element to it. There's a Gothic element. You know, with the exception mm-hmm. of explicitly in Sekiro, it's very much Western-inspired. Like exactly on, on, on the surface, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. So, without knowing that, it's easy to assume that you know the church. For example, the church and cathedrals that you're going to are based off of Abrahamic religions. You know, monotheistic, uh, Catholic, even. You know, and <laughs> without going too far into it, there's a lot of that imagery because again, there's that subversion of what the meaning is. So there's words like communion being thrown around. There's a, a clear visual reference in the Pieta of Lawrence. 
Um, but really at the heart of these games is a Shintoist and Buddhist uh, through line. And it extends to all sections of the game. How does it do that? Yeah, so there's a lot to say about Buddhism and Shintoism and about in all of these games, but I guess from the from the get-go. Okay, so you wake up in the clinic, you go downstairs, and you get absolutely slaughtered, if, if this is your first time, by that werewolf, right? You are instantly, upon death, teleported to the dream. Okay, so the dream is obviously a Lovecraft reference, but the way that Miyazaki works is he kind of, in his cauldron, combines all of these elements... So in this case, it's Lovecraft and Buddhism. And the Buddhist element is this idea of samsara being trapped perpetually in this cycle, um, death and rebirth, death and rebirth, um, without being able to transcend it. But the first note that you see in the game says, seek pale blood to transcend the hunt. So already right there, we have our full motif of even though we don't know what pale blood is in the beginning, um, there's this idea of enlightenment, of opening your third eye, but in this case, many eyes on your brain. See where they took all of these ideas, right? And couldn't you argue too that with, I mean, honestly, with all of the Soulsborns, uh, mm-hmm. one, one of the major, I think, emotions that kind of come out of it is contemplation. It's not just constant fighting and and, and you know recovery. There is also the sense of taking in the world and taking in why you're doing these things, at least for me. And totally. Totally that point. So I think kind of talking about the idea of transcendence and rebirth, especially with like as you're unraveling the final scenes of the game where it's like you're being reborn as the slug thing and possibly. And it's like there's always this idea of like, you know, the rekindling of the fire in the Dark Souls series. Like there's this always this sense of perpetual motion and rebirth and stuff like that. And it always kind of leaves a weird taste in your mouth because you know that a lot of it never ends well. There's always going to be consequences mm-hmm. of that. So I think that's interesting to see that kind of really coming out in this Russian doll way as we were talking about. Um, kind of moving on theme-wise, we talked about horror, we talked about Shintoism. Um, I guess we can kind of continue on with like the idea of birth. And this is something we talked about you know, in our chat about how it seems like Miyazaki is really obsessed with children. Um, you know, especially like smaller infants and stuff like that. And I think with this one, there's definitely an element to that. You'd probably agree. Most definitely. Um, on the topic of childbirth, like you'll, you'll come to understand that it's all about childbirth. Well, in the beginning, it's all about blood. And then it, then it's about heritage and bloodlines. And then it's about childbirth and childbirth is seen as also rebirth. Okay talking on a, on a species level. Um, but more specifically, childbirth itself, I there's no concrete evidence, and I don't want to pry too much into Miyazaki-san's life, but the fact that he had a child in 2019, um, you know, you can kind of paint a picture in your mind that perhaps he was at least, him and his wife was at least considering childbirth, so... Maybe in some sort of way he was channeling all of these emotions um, 
that would come with fatherhood and the idea of childbirth in general, kind of like David Lynch did with his uh, first film, Eraserhead. Excuse me. If you've ever seen Eraserhead, you'll know that it's just like this... Uh, it's kind of a, a miserable take on what it could be and the deformities and what could happen, what could go wrong with childbirth. So maybe some of that anxiety was fueled into this game. And we always, you know, the basis of horror is the proposition of death. And when you kind of flip it on its head, the inverse of horror is new life, rebirth and childhood. So maybe in a way, with Lynch and Miyazaki, they're trying to channel that same sort of fear we have of old age and sudden death and disease and cancer and all this other stuff in a way to, to childhood and, and young life versus, you know, just the typical old death or whatever else that we sort of typically view as a natural death. That could be too. Um, I, it's not a thought I really considered because... The way I interpret these games and Miyazaki's writing in particular is that he comes from a, a place, an existential viewpoint that's, I, I don't want to say hopeless, but it's, there's this sense of feudalism and the futility of not, I don't want to say everything. I, I do think there's, there's some sort of hope, like he presents that hope in the form of overcoming challenges, but ultimately at the end of it, um, there's this sense of this this samsara cycle that I was referring to before of this endless, ceaseless uh, suffering in the name of what we don't really know. Um, and and it's easy to play these games, and I have for the longest time as just action games. You know, um, you don't have to consider your actions. You don't have to dig into the lore. You can uh, bust some skulls up. You can drink the blood and you can revel, you know, in, in the misery of all the beasts and things that you've slain. But, um, you know, characters in this game, uh, Jura comes to mind in old Yarnum. He'll, he'll, he'll take you down this other thought process where, hey, what is the root of these beasts? Oh, they were people. Oh, they're devolved and they're actually at the mercy of the healing church who's been experimenting on them with the old blood and, um, you know, powers that be are fucking everybody, you know, and then you can start to pick it apart and kind of see where your morality lies. Sure. And I want to kind of blood echo what you just said uh, in the sense <laughs> that um, uh, the games, I don't want to paint this picture that, you know, what we, Joe and I have just been uh riffing on is this idea that it's all purely philosophical and it's all purely just miserable but you know the games don't i don't know they don't make me feel miserable like they don't they can they could they have that they have that nature to them they have that oppressive nature to them but i don't know i i feel very invigorated by playing these games i like uncovering things so if you if you're not one of the people that has played you know the soulsborne games or bloodborne in particular we're making it sound ultra depressing right off the bat and i don't think it necessarily has to be so to speak i mean there's like you said you can just play this like a game and 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 fight and kill and move really quickly but you know if you do take the time to peel back the layers of it yeah you do see this um these different elements kind of playing in the background a lot i for sure don't want to dissuade anyone um you know i've been playing these games for what six plus years like they they have transformed my mind 
in regards to what gaming can be. And on the, on the point of a very dismal atmosphere, um, the creator himself, Miyazaki, in an interview said that, yes, this world is very dismal, but there's this beauty in that, you know? And I, and I think that's a really real remark. You can apply that to your own life. Like, it, like look at the world we're in, you know? Like, we have to find the beauty in this. Otherwise, you know, we're all fucked. Absolutely. So. And if I could uh, comment on, uh, you know, maybe piggybacking off of that suffering, um, you know, ideal, it to me is of no surprise when we're thinking about Miyazaki and thinking about his, you know, sort of, I guess, uh, inspirations. Uh, Miura with Berserk uh, makes total sense, you know, especially when you go through um yes indeed anime and uh particularly what you know the main protagonist you know goes through um and this sort of feedback loop of hell uh but also you know therein lies the question um not just to you know the characters in the story but you know for bloodborne the actual player uh it was this worth it you know uh the amount of times Mm -hmm. that it took me to get through uh orphan uh you know what was uh the the triumph is the juice always worth the squeeze um but uh you know i don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole of animes uh that uh not everyone may or may not have seen but uh everyone should and uh it you know going through at least the uh uh, the golden era uh anime it makes total sense um no 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 that's the perfect segue my friend um it has to be stated that Every Miyazaki Soulsborne game is influenced by Berserk. And um, yeah, the Golden Age arc, that's what most people know. And honestly, that's basically the main point that I know. I have not read past the Golden Age arc, despite owning all of the manga sitting on the shelf uh, looming over me at this point. Um, And just this morning, it's funny you bring Berserk up right now. Just this morning, I made a new discovery myself about a connection between the moon presence and the doll and a character I have not yet met in Berserk called Flora. And the reason I know that this is um, in connection with Bloodborne lore is that in a rare cutscene, not cutscene, in a rare dialogue where the doll is by herself playing, praying at a grave, she mentions Flora in reference to the moon presence. So we can surmise from that that the moon presence name is flora whatever that might mean and miyazaki has probably clearly put that reference from berserk in here intentionally so that we could kind of follow that thread and pick it apart and who does flora look like in berserk she looks like the doll so even now i don't even know what that all means right i don't want to know what that means but it's exciting to me yeah exactly yeah that that is a crazy connection for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you guys have, there's a lot of directions we can kind of go with this, but I kind of want to talk a little bit more about mm-hmm. some, there's a few things that kind of like, you know, make sense plot wise, but there's still a few things that are kind of, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that have the same kind of questions too. Like, for example, let's kind of start off with this one. What is the pale blood? Like what, 
it starts off the game. Um, yeah, starting with the big one, huh? Okay. I, I, I suppose if we can, if we can kind of condense. Yeah, let's get into it. Yeah, let's, let's jump into the pale blood here. Pale blood. That's the exact first thing you hear in this whole game. Ah, pale blood, right? That's what the blood minister says to you. So your player character off screen was inquiring about pale blood to the blood minister. And that's what starts your whole journey in Yarnum, getting ministered with the old blood, etc., etc. And then the note right in the clinic, it says, seek pale blood to transcend the hunt. So that's actually your first mission. You know, there's in, in these games, there's no quest log. There's nothing like that, right? You can lose it to obscurity very quickly when you're fighting beasts and just trying to hang on for dear life. But really, that is your first mission is to seek quote-unquote pale blood and spoiler alert it may or may not be blood it can be many things but throughout the game you'll find hints and there's this ritual it's called the mensis ritual and it's like the main plot line in the game we'll get into that later um pale blood seems to be referring to the sky and it's a loaded thing because the sky is also the cosmos, according to the choir, okay? But the sky turns into a pale blood sky when there is a blood moon. And the pale blood sky looks like a body drained of blood, okay? So you can imagine, right, when we're, when we're hunting and we're killing all these body and all of these beasts and everything, we're draining them of their blood echoes, this essence, this will to survive, right? So the blood moon is, you know, metaphorically or, you know, quite literally taking all of the blood and concentrating it into this being called the moon presence. Okay. So on the night of the blood moon, on the night that all of the Yarnamites are turning into beasts and everyone's going mad fucking crazy because of this blood curse, this is the essence of pale blood. Um, so... <sighs> Taking that apart, it's the name of the sky, the situation of the sky and the blood moon, and it's also referring to the creature itself, the Great One, the Moon Presence, who you'll meet in two of the endings. Right, okay. And I'm still kind of fuzzy um, on the whole idea of the Hunter's Dream. Like, why is it, you know, <sighs> when, you, when you first start playing it, too, um, you know, you, you die and then you go back to the Hunter's Dream, and that's like the hub world. All the Soulsborne games have a hub zone, and that is the hub area for Bloodborne. And so you transport there via lanterns, um, and that's where you do your upgrades and stuff like that. And it's a relatively mm -hmm. small, serene scene. But there's also within the game, within the actual world, once you're outside of the dream, there is that zone within Yarnum itself. So I'm still kind of confused on how the whole Hunter's Dream works. Read, so am I. <laughs> but no, I'll, I'll try to... Uh... Uh, go into it a bit so upon being ministered the blood you you enter a nightmare sequence and this is where it gets tricky because you you could say that the entire game is a nightmare in the sense of lovecraftian nightmare dreamlands nightmare um, and not just like, you know, a horrifying experience. But 
in my understanding, the hunter's dream represents the prison that Garman that started with Garman. And Garman is the first hunter, yes? And you'll find an abandoned workshop, and this is called the source of the hunter's dream, and on an altar in this abandoned workshop in the waking world, you'll find a third umbilical cord. And what this umbilical cord is, it's an umbilical cord of an actual great one's child. Okay, And so these very, very, very special items are used to beckon great ones in order to, um, you know, whatever means you want. We'll see with the Mensis ritual, you know, Mikalash wanted to commune with a great one in order to become a great one himself, potentially. Um, you'll see with, in the case of fake Yosefka, I'm, I'm getting into kind of crazy territory, but well, you'll I'm, see. I'm just a pause okay. there. Like, what's yep. the, what's the, what is the goal? Like, what's the goal here? Like, with all of these different organizations, not organizations necessarily, but these different groups of people, what is, like, the end goal for all of mm -hmm. these people to kind of do? Because sure. Is there, was there ever sanity to be, to begin with, or was it always this drive for madness? It's not so much a drive for madness as I, I see it as... So, linking this to Gothic literature... I don't want to go too far off the rails, but Mary Shelley called her Frankenstein novel, it was called The Modern Prometheus. Mm -hmm. So the way I view Bloodborne is it's the modern period piece Prometheus, if that makes any sense. Sure, yeah. So it's, it's the idea of humanity overextending its reach in, in order to transcend humanity, you know, to become great ones themselves and completely fucking up in the process. And that's where all of these threads go. Like everyone makes mistakes, almost everyone makes mistakes in this in this pursuit of complete power. Um before it's all connected and that's why it's so easy to go off the rails. Let's loop back to the hunter's dream. Okay. And so this is a prison that was created between a contract with Garman and Lawrence, Lawrence, who is the first vicar of the Healing Church, they they were um, uh, acquainted, not acquaintances. They were more than acquaintances. They were uh, professionally uh, involved with each other, colleagues, you could say, Garman and Lawrence. They supposedly, according to the item description of the umbilical cord found in the source of the hunter's night, hunter's dream, they made a contract with the moon presence and the contract goes we don't know what was offered to the moon presence but in place of what was offered in return for what what it was offered there is this uh never-ending kind of purgatory in the guise of this dream this idyllic place that will bind hunters to do the will of the moon presence in, they will be undying. So they'll keep going through the cycle of samsara that I was talking about before. So the big question of the game is, what is the hunt? Like, wh why are we hunting? And it seems to be that through all of our actions, we're, we're just on the puppet strings of the moon presence to kind of... In, and again, this is all for interpretation. 
And there's so many damn theories that it's easy to get lost in everybody's ideas, but right. just spitballing right now, it seems to be that upon reading something on the umbilical cord that says all great ones lose their children and they, how does it, how does the saying go? They, they, they crave a surrogate child. So it seems that the moon presence wants us or wants a hunter in the case, uh, Gehrman is, is the one that we meet in the beginning, but she craves the, the surrogate. Okay. I'm going off the rails. Let's pause. <laughs> okay. It's all good. Okay. I said a bunch of shit. What does it all mean? The hunter's dream is a prison that hunters are bound to by the hunter's mark. The hunter's mark is a physical, it's called a rune in the English translation, but it's more like the transcribed language of the great ones. And these, the power of the language of the great ones is so significant, it grants the people that have memorized or have been, um, in this case, bound by the language, it, it gives you superhuman powers. In this case, it's the superhuman power to not die. And hunters in the service of the moon presence, most likely, is bound to this dream until Mergo's crying is put to sleep. And that is a whole nother meaning with a whole nother rabbit hole. Absolutely. I'll end my hunter's dream speech right there. <laughs> and I think before we kind of uh, take a further deep dive, Bravo, our, <laughs> we continue to put our head in the, put our head in the hole here. I want to kind of jump over to talk a little bit about the characters of the game themselves because we talk about mm -hmm. Moon Presence. Good idea. Um, so I want to kind of jump <clears throat> back over to Caleb and I want to ask you just off top, what is your favorite character, Caleb, and why is it Alfred? <laughs> <laughs> because, man, he is, he's quite the stud. So I guess Caleb is... A <laughs> he's a himbo. <laughs> a straight himbo. So, what is your, um, so yeah, Caleb, what is your general impressions of the characters, whether they are NPCs or bosses or anybody that's kind of involved here? Well, Yosefka is the first character you probably really have uh, like um, a dialogue box with. Uh, and I found her to be very interesting uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, the, sort of the mystery behind her. You know, maybe this is being um, a little bit, you know, elementary or early game, but Eileen, um, the crow, is, you know, the first time at least that I, I, I feel like you find someone who you can trust. Uh, so as far as um, just from a, like, mental health uh, standpoint in the game, I felt like uh, it was really nice meeting her. Uh, especially sure. through the gauntlet that is central Yarnum. Uh, and then also just, you know, 
what leads with uh, her quest all the way uh, to the cathedral chapel, isn't it? Um, that you have to sort of uh, uh, avenge her, um, which is, I think all three of us can agree, one of the top five uh, battles in the game. So Bloody Crow. Absolutely. Um, so I... I guess from a who do I like standpoint, who who makes me feel good, it would probably be Eileen. <laughs> yeah. uh, as far as like just curiosity from a first time playthrough standpoint, Yusefka. Um But then, you know, as far as uh, bosses, uh, you know, Orphan to me, whenever I think about Bloodborne, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, this is DLC, but uh, that that boss particularly is. Uh, shakes me to my core and still does and there's some good youtube videos out there i'll plug my youtube channel later <laughs> yeah for Hell sure yeah uh, how about you reed uh in terms of characters yeah i i do agree with eileen because yeah as kittle was saying the entire entire central area there is just completely gone mad like even i remember talking to you guys when i was going through my playthrough um was just a lot of like Joe saying, you know, don't trust anybody, you know, don't trust anybody. Like there's, there's this just general <laughs> sense of untrustworthiness with all these people that you can talk to really briefly um, interactions, interactions wise. So I think Eileen is, is what Caleb said is like a oddly welcome refuge in this entire chaos. And like, even like I was joking about Alfred, he does give off some really weird vibes. And if you do kind of play through his quest line, you know, you can kind of see why. Um, but, uh, and, there's also, I mean, there's patches, of course, which is just I love patches. <laughs> the recurring character. The recurring yep. character. I mean, there is something really sad about Father Gascoigne and like his whole lore with his family is really more sad, sad with his daughter, but yeah, absolutely, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah his daughter, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I the character designs are excellent. Um, they're disgusting, you know, which is great, especially you know as you get you know uh, like Bloodstained Beast was just just disgusting, you know, old Flappy Head. But, um, blood starved beast yeah oh, sorry blood starved beast my mistake um <laughs> he is but... staying so it's <laughs> yeah right. one in the same one in the same um but i i, I really like in terms of if we're, we're going to talk about boss fights if we're going to get a little reprieve from the lore um i will say my favorite fights were Lugarius, uh amygdala and i, I guess I, I here's the thing about murgo's wet nurse is you know i watched a few videos about uh you know, people fighting her and uh, or him, I don't know. Um, I'm sure Joe knows, but um, uh, the, like I never got the second phase where they do the like the clone shadow. Like I, I don't know if I just beat her down enough that she didn't do that. There's a way to bypass it. Yeah, yeah. I guess I just did that. Um, mm-hmm. But Martyr Lagarius had my number for a long time. Um, I thought the Moon Presence design was awesome. I really liked that Cthulhu-ish, you know, design and everything. But uh, I think all the characters are really cool. Um, yeah. I mean, not a lot of. I think it's really sorry. No, go ahead. I think it's uh, you know, if if we're going to talk about gameplay, you know, we discussed the the Russian doll effect of you know going in from just a classic gothic horror, um, yes, werewolves, yes, disease. Uh, that 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 would have been enough if the game ends with just the first act one of the game uh that i think all of us could agree that still would be i, a great I would play game. that game yeah. <laughs> yeah it would be a great game and then the fact that you know you have this you know whole extra layer uh that becomes lovecraftian as joe mentioned and becomes 
just so cosmic and like, wait, what? And I do feel, uh, and I'm cribbing a little bit of this, you know, from, uh, you know, other people that have given me lorgasm, such as Redgrave and uh, whoever else I can plug, oh, yeah. I'll try to, uh, in the comment section. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, like, I do think that, like, I, what would you say, Joe? Like, ROM is kind of when this breaking point happens, when it goes from one game to the next and... Uh, or is it not that simple, do you think? I do, I do feel like if you're going to try to find a line in the sand, it, it's around then, right? Like I like that you brought this up because I had this this like revelation, personal revelation, just a couple nights ago. I even recorded it on my phone. So I was like, why the fuck is Ram a spider? What 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 is the symbology? What is the significance of a spider? And my own personal reasoning came to she is the spider at the center of the web. The web, which is the foundation, all of these lines of, of the plot and the story and the history and the lore, she is at the center of it in our experience. I don't know, you know, this is all a speculation. I don't know if that was some of the reasoning behind she, why was she a spider, etc., etc. But that is how I'm thinking about the game. So yes, Ram is the, pan, she is the literal opening of Pandora's box. Because she's actually hiding the Mensis ritual, which is the second half of the game, and the communion with great ones. Yes, I, I agree with that. Okay, what? I'm glad that mm -hmm. I'm on like somewhat of the right track. Uh, you know, to again crib from other, um, you know, lore verse uh, uh, sort of uh, mentors that I have, and, and and I know you have too. Wouldn't you say mm -hmm. that maybe she also could be a spider because of the amount of eyes that she has and everything that eyes symbolize in the game um, with uh, Master Willem and all of his uh, research? Sure. I, I mean, definitely. Um, it, it's Ram is so interesting. No, no, no. I, I think there's a lot of visual cues too. And it, interestingly enough, more so her dead body looks like a spider because you actually find Ram's body. Let's let's back up. Who is Ram? Ram appears to be a scholar of Bergenworth, the college that found the old blood in Yarnum, um, the source of all of this shit that's happening in the game. And Ram appears to be a scholar that was either that was probably a student under Willem, who was on the pursuit of understanding this blood. And she appears to be an ascended human being. She she ascended before us into this state of being a great one. But something, we don't know what the hell went wrong, but we do find her body near Abriatas in uh, Upper Cathedral Ward. And I'm still trying to unwrap it all. <laughs> Here we go into the lore again. <laughs> so in the... We, we drop into the Moonside Lake, and there appears Rom. Rom, who is just kind of about her own business, not even attacking us when we enter. Um, she looks like a caterpillar, okay? So it's really strange. In this dream world, she looks like a caterpillar. And if we kind of dig into the placement of Rom's body near Abriatas, Abriatas looks like a butterfly, more or less. Uh, a fucking Cthulhu butterfly, right? Mm. Uh, and 
what we can maybe say is that through time, through absorption of blood, in time, perhaps Ram could have ascended to the level of Abriatas, who is a full-fledged great one. Um, so we kind of see this evolution path, but the tragedy seems to be that upon this rebirth from human to great one or kin of the cosmos, which is kind of a lesser great one, um, she died. What does that mean? We don't know. Why does Mikolash, when he communes with Mergo, why does he die? It, it's all connected very densely. But I will say that Ram is actually one of my favorite characters talking about characters because of the, the significance and the, the, seeming, um, the seemingly kind of like, you, you don't expect it from this like docile boss character, you know? Right. And I feel like the, uh, to me, it took a lot of... Uh looking back uh hindsight with mm -hmm. the fight with mikolash in his dialogue uh you know name dropping rom and it was like wait why mm -hmm. talking about rom like and i was like oh so rom is important because rom because <laughs> rom isn't that strong i mean the defense is good uh but you know if you remember the battle itself like it's memorable but it isn't like uh, you know, spend all day fighting Rom type of battle, at least not for me, and, and I have plenty of those under my belt. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. And and they kind of parallel each other, the Rom fight and the Mikolash fight, because you, you, you think about the Mikolash fight, he spends the entire fight running away, you know? So there's this real passive energy and it parallels their storylines. Like, they they more or less ascended Mikolash less so, I would argue. Um, and they kind of, in a weird way, achieved what they set out to do. But at the end of the day, they're they're completely fucking dead in the waking world. So what does that say? Again, this is the uh, Prometheus, the Promethean storyline that we were talking about before. I kind of wanted to take a side tangent, kind of. Um, no, go ahead. I, I think with looking at environments and characters and places in this game... Mm -hmm. One of the things that I felt personally was the most jarring in a weird way was how this whole game is super, you know, the environment is very claustrophobic. It's a lot of narrow spaces and stuff like that. The mm -hmm. most, like, unsettling environment for me was actually the lecture halls because you're kind of sent up to these zones and it seems relatively normal. There's not a ton of enemies except for that one major room. And, like, you walk into the lecture hall where there's all these seats. It's, like, the most normal looking environment but there's so much like nastiness and i think having mm. this disparity between a relatively benign environment with what's going on around you i just i don't know like that for whatever reason was really a standout moment for me is there any like lore behind the the lecture hall stuff because you'd like you, you go to um you know level one level two and then you're just when you exit the doors you're taken somewhere else it's not it's the nightmare, right? It's not like directly connected to anything. Mm -hmm. It's not just another cathedral, you know, or anything else like mm -hmm. that. Which you're, kind of, you're kind of used to. You're used to cathedrals. You're used to churches. You're used to like burning buildings and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Then you get to this benign lecture hall, and it takes you to this nightmare. So I was really always kind of perturbed whenever I was in the lecture hall. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that everything has lore significance in this game. Every little detail, but yes, definitely the uh, lecture halls pertain to the research that was done in Bergenworth that the the findings 
So an important part of these games that we have not mentioned yet is the chalice dungeons, as most players know them. But it's called the Tomb of the Old Gods. Okay, The Tomb of the Gods, I think, is technically the term. And it's this underground labyrinth underneath the city of Yarnum where this game takes place. And this is where a very Lovecraftian Call of Cthulhu concept where the civilization was underground and this uh, city of uh, the Great Ones exists and where the blood was first found. Mm. Okay. So their excavations and archaeological trips that took them further and further down into this Tomb of the Gods um, is... uh, these findings are what you find in the lecture hall. And yes, they seem to be this kind of limbo portal to the nightmare. You can kind of see it as hell. The nightmare is this hell that was birthed from the hum- humanity screwing around with the great ones, uh, uh, screwing around with the great ones. And um, it, it stems from that research. So that's the significance. As far as why you can't physically find the lecture hall and where it is exactly, that's still up for debate. And that's the thing, like, years and years later, people will still be speculating, but there is no clear answer, not for the sake of, like, there's no meaning behind it, but for the sake of you really got to dig deeper. And that's what I've been doing right now. Yeah, like, for example... Know? Do we know Go why, ahead. like all the scholars and stuff in the hall, all the goop boys, they're like, because like, like it's not a, they're not a scary enemy. But like, no. It's like, hey, boy, you're pretty goopy. Like, what's the meaning there? Like, why? I'll tell you what, audience, if anyone has a good answer, please hit me up. Hit your boy up because I don't. Maybe it's just like, I don't know, like they were experimented on and like they started getting a little corrupted. I don't know. It's weird. I mean, and too much soup? I don't know. Like, too much soup, baby, you know? I, I would say, like, we have to take what we see in the nightmare realms with a grain of salt because it's not necessarily a, a one-to-one to what happened in history, right? Sure. It is a depiction filtered through who. Like, who is the host of the lecture hall? We don't. We have to uncover that, and uh, I still have yet to uncover that myself. For example, the DLC, you enter the the Hunter's Nightmare, right? My speculation, and I don't think I've read this anywhere, my personal speculation upon thinking about it further this last month since you invited me on here, um, is that it's, it's Garman's memories that's... And, it, and through his communion with the moon presence, I mean, he's the first hunter, he's the stem of all hunters, so why would he not be the source, the host of that nightmare? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, my speculation is that all of those events that we see in the DLC are filtered through the traumas and the, the suffering that he caused on himself. You know, he, he killed you know, supposedly killed the orphan of cause, the the baby of a great one for the sake of human research, right? Yeah. And he, he's filtering all of this emotion. And a very significant thing is the, um, the source of a lot of his pain is from losing Maria, who was more or less his romantic interest in this game. And uh, we kind of uncover her death, her own suicide in there. Great armor, by the way. 
Oh, hell yeah. And, and shout out to Brotherhood of the Wolf, man. A cr- crazy costume design. I yes. watch that. So talking about Garman again, because he does he's a pivotal figure because, you know, until you get to the end of the game, he's just old. He's man. huge. He's this old man wheelchair. But um, if you get one of the the be- the, the second ending, um, you are just the next one in his wheelchair. So are you connected to Garman then? Are you like a uh, avatar of his then? Or something because because mm. it, it's this whole like you were saying this whole um, cycle of some samsara and uh, rebirth and everything. Like, mm-hmm. That's what I was kind of confused on. Like, are you a part of Garman? Are you like I don't know how that works. So Garman's important because he was the first hunter, and his contract with the Moon Presence is what started the the hunter's dream. Okay, this this opening of uh, a plane with a great one. And Garman is, at, at the point we meet him in the game, is only as important insofar as his duty to the Moon Presence. Uh, basically, the surrogate child, you know, the Moon Presence is unable to conceive herself, so she, she craves a surrogate, you know. That's this theme in this game of uh, wanting children because you can't uh, produce any yourself. Um, so Garman is the surrogate um, trapped in hell, in Moon Presence hell, and upon defeating Garman and not ingesting the umbilical cords, ascending you to a great one, you'll be embraced in a motherly fashion. Yes, you'll be embraced by the Moon Presence and take Garman's place as the surrogate child of the Moon Presence, okay. uh, serving the will of her to recruit new hunters to keep feeding this cycle over and over. What is the Moon Presence's mission? That is completely up for debate. Um, we we see that she is pleased upon our duty is fulfilled upon putting Marigo this <laughs> who is Marigo we'll get to that i guess but putting the great one child Marigo to rest okay i see so what does that mean that's up for interpretation right as most mm-hmm. things are in these soulsborn games yeah mm-hmm. what's, what's this what's the sitch what's the deets on the doll though like, did, is that something that Garmin created, or is that uh, without without spending an entire creating a new series? Yeah, man. The doll. So, the origin of the doll you see a bit in the abandoned workshop, which is also the origin of the dream. The doll appears to be a kind of a replacement for Garmin, based on Maria, this old hunter colleague, and. I'm speculating romantic interest of Garman, love interest, yeah. And after losing her, um, we don't want to get into that story, but basically she commits suicide. That's a whole other story. Um, He, in his grieving process, creates this doll that naturally would never replace her. But it appears to be, and again, this is speculation, that... Upon making the hunter's dream, signing more or less a contract with uh, the moon presence, the doll is animated in the hunter's dream. And my latest theory, I've gone through many, but my latest theory is that actually the doll is an aspect of the moon presence. Because you think about it, the, the hunter's dream was created by the moon presence it's not like she would allow any other great one to enter it, you know, especially when there's evidence of her kind of um, 
I keep saying her, she's like a mother, when there's evidence of the moon presence um, kind of in opposition to some of the other great ones you'll find through the game. So my takeaway is that through leveling up, using your blood echoes, the will of all that you've slain, using this uh, corrupted blood to grow more powerful, it's all um, in service of the moon presence via uh, an aspect of herself fittingly as a doll, you know, like a, like a hand puppet you can kind of think of or, you know, being pulled by the strings of. Yeah, um, yeah, that makes more sense. And it gives kind of crazy context to the last ending when you are the, the ending where you become a great one yourself because the moon presence kind of cradles you like a mother. And if you, if you take the reading of that's the moon presence that's actually cradling you, you know, this whole process it has not ended. There is no uh, resolution because you're just still an infant great one under the care of the moon presence. So just you like, see? A lot of, like a lot of the other Soulsborne games, whatever your choice is doesn't necessarily always is a positive one. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, so it's, it has the sinister undertone with, with the uh, facade of appearing like uh like we've uh, transcended like it's like this kind of joyous moment oh you're cold come in you know let me warm you up i'm a mother but it gets a little sinister and yeah. i think according to the i think according to the um like online wikis and stuff like that that's the best ending right like is it is it really? no, exactly and and that's the gray area and that's like any good work of art like this interpretation it's like i don't know man like is that where you want to be like uh, like Cypher in the Matrix, I think maybe ignorance is bliss, baby. Like, let's just wake up. Let's get the fuck out of this nightmare. And hey, like, I'm in Yarnum. I don't care about all that. I mean, Red pill, blue pill, baby. Yeah, exactly. Red yep. pill, blue pill. Yeah, Caleb, it's all relevant. Were you going to chime in on something there, Caleb? Because I saw you cannot unmute and unmute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I just, I think I was just playing with my toggles. Uh, but uh, I think Joe hit the nail on the head. Um, and and you as well, Reed. I, I don't think that uh, this game allows the catharsis of, of maybe others with, um, you know, and, and others that are amazing games that I think we all love. You know, where it's like, do you want to be dark or do you want to be light? You know, like Knights of the Old Republic, <laughs> exactly. Fable, yeah. yeah. Or uh, you know, even uh, even even Elder Scrolls to an extent, like uh, you know, with these like very like uh there, there's not a lot of gray area where i think it's only gray area with bloodborne and even in in, in really any of the from soft games that i've uh had the privilege of being able to beat and complete for that matter it's like ah well you know it even even in like fashion the dark endings are like well i could see how you know you can make a case for it i think that's actually more realistic to what um politics today is and, and probably mm -hmm. has been for a long time you know we rejoice when a certain person might win or not win presidency and then you kind of look and you're like well like what what's getting done and is it a, it's it's very gradual changes and stuff like that so it's, it's just a it ever was mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a more nuanced complex reflection of of our reality of our waking world if you will and just like something in in our lives that could bring joy and others suffering um it, it's all up to the eye of the beholder 
and how you interpret things. I think you could easily go through this game being like, I'm killing beasts, I'm doing the good thing. You're, you're fucking Alfred, right? Like, you, you believe uh, you're taking the Kool-Aid, you believe what you're doing is good. Um, and it, it, it's up to the player to decide for themselves, ultimately, like we were mentioning before, like, where, where is my morality in this? What, what Am I doing the right thing? Do I care? And uh, it just it allows that breathing room, this this gray space. And I'm sorry, I know we're going into this whole sort of philosophical speech, but I'm still thinking about how I wish this was on PC so people could put Cypher from the Matrix as a playable character. (laughs) (laughs) Well, dude, just just make him yourself. And you're Hunter. Yeah, I you could. But, like, <laughs> but then, like, the, uh, the the blood vials, like, they'd have to be stakes. I mean, you just have to, like... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, who's to say that we're not, eat, you know, eating a little beast on the side? You know? A little beast stick. A Yarnum that implies the existence of Cypher must also imply the existence of Tank, Neo... <laughs> Bro, uh, wait, we're getting into our own canon, Caleb, because we think about Cypher... Uh, what's his name? Joe Cifaretto? Is that the actor's name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and uh, he was in The Sopranos, and uh, I made Furio. So, it, you know, it's all in our own little lore canon here. Who do you think? So let's uh, we'll, we'll, let's take a let's take a Hunter's reprieve here for a second. Who do you think yeah. in the Matrix would be the best at the Soulsborne, and why is it Mouse? <laughs> and why is it Mouse? Good question. Because he has two fucking Tommy guns, probably. <laughs> yeah, <the media> does. <laughs> I mean, I can I can imagine Mouse being really good. At, uh, well, Mouse so. Mouse just wants to get laid, you know, by the woman in red. Yeah, I I think Trinity would be uh, very successful. Just I think there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, boss babes in in these games, and uh, you know I think that you know also the pistol you know like the, the riposte and bloodborne especially that, that that would come in handy uh i know neo's got that up his sleeve too um, oh hell yeah but uh yeah i, I mean <laughs> so thinking of casting decisions for eileen the crow <laughs> was it carry on was it carry on moss yeah carry on moss yeah or like maybe like uh what's her name from stranger things winona ryder <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, yeah. she was in Dracula, so maybe she's yeah. from Castle Canehurst, you know. Or Ellen Bonham, uh, Ellen Bonham Carter, maybe. If you, if, yes. if, yeah, if, if Eileen's like a little it's bit old a at this point. Bros, we're creating a through line. Oh, I, I was just watching um, Brotherhood of the Wolf and Inspiration for Bloodborne, and who was in it? Monica Bellalucci, so hot. I, I think she got a little hotter in uh, Reloaded, Matrix Reloaded, but uh, she was looking real nice in this okay oh man (laughs) beautiful conversation yeah don't you love that little horny talk talk. uh should we talk about gameplay a little bit yeah we we definitely should because because we can go into the realm forever Um, yeah yeah um, we could totally down for for gameplay so caleb get us get us started then like what's your what's your like maybe i thinking like comparisons to the other souls born are you thinking um what's in your mind yeah, I think, you know, it, it, it does depend. I, I, I alluded to this earlier where I said that Bloodborne is the hardest game I ever played because um, it just happened to be, I, I spin the roulette wheel and this was the first one that I played out of the FromSoft. But um, any 
first from soft I played probably would have been it, especially if it was Dark Souls one. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm thankful that I had just a little bit of Bloodborne experience under my belt before Dark Souls one, which is um, far harder of a game for all intents and purposes, whether it be the amount of bonfires that you can reach or whatever else. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, going back to Bloodborne specifically, you know, it's so hard and that, that beginning area in Central Yarnum is so frustrating. And yet with revisionist history, it's my favorite part of the game. In fact, if I had any criticism of Bloodborne, uh, and it's not really a criticism, it's just that, like, I love the beginning so much, and I love the whole game so much, and I, and I think that it actually gets better and more complex as time goes on. But that feeling in Central Yarnum is so, oh, it just sticks with you. And, you know, there's been a lot of great movies uh, that, you know, the beginning is the best part, but it doesn't mean the rest of the movie sucks. Uh, Blade Runner 2049... Saving Private Ryan, whatever else. Uh, but, you know, I just, it really does it for me. Um, that feeling, Joe already mentioned, it's scarier than hell. And yeah, like, you know, when I wasn't playing co-op and I was just trying to get through some parts on my own so I could get enough insight to do co-op, it was like a little journey. And it's kind of hilarious how that works, you know? Like, it's like... Just to get to the point to be able to ring the bell to like have someone come into your world requires you to like, you know, go through it. And if you happen to lose your insight like I did, um, then it becomes even more of a, a journey. And that's exactly what happened. And the jump scares, everything's there. But at the same time, it's just creepy knocking on people's door. Um, everything about that. And I'm cribbing this from the Bonfire Side uh, podcast chat, but they pointed out a really good point. Unlike the other um, FromSoft games that I've played, and I have not played Sekiro, and I have not played Dark Souls 2, so unless those two have this, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Bloodborne is the only one that really actually puts you in a, a, a town-like feel, and I'm talking like... You know, you can knock on people's houses and have them respond. Um, like, people are living there. Um, sure, mm-hmm. Dark Souls, like, it, there's people there and they're existing and it feels like a lived and breathed in world, but nothing quite, to me, hits like Yarnum, which feels like very much um, living, breathing, and dying, obviously, uh, you know, in, in that same way uh it, it feels very much more like the feeling of playing morrowind for the first time and walking through um Sedanine and being like oh look at this like you know you can interact <laughs> with the world in a different way um and the world is not nearly as welcoming in yarnum and, and all you want to do is get out but then when you start a new character i think it reminds you about how much it is um, one of the strongest parts of the game in my mind uh, but i don't want to say that that takes away from the later parts of the game, just how impressive the first part of the game is. And I want to, I want to comment on that too, that you mentioned that I didn't think about that before now is that, yeah, Yarnum, you know, it, it, the whole game is, you know, largely centered around the phases of the moon, right? Like what, you know, what part of the game are you in depending on? Totally. And 
yeah, it seems like with the other Souls games, it's after the fact, right? It's it kind of like a, a big dragon just came through here and wiped out all these bad guys, but there's still some left over. There's always this like, not post-apocalyptic, but post-main event. And Bloodborne is you are leading up to the event. And I think that That's builds, builds sort of the tension of it too, you know? Mm-hmm. What do you think, Joe? Totally, dude. Yeah, those are good points. Um, yeah, Dark Souls, you, you are in the 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 winking out of a civilization the uh the end of an age and in bloodborne you're on the precipice of that and yes it is the moon it is the blood moon it is the mensis ritual you're on the you're on the precipice of this huge event of course it's not spelled out for you you have to pick it all apart and like even after you've gone through the whole thing you killed the wet nurse you killed the moon presence you like what does it all mean, right? But that's the beauty of it, and that's what keeps you coming back. Yeah, and yeah, the other Souls game, they do feel very isolated. Yeah, you see some some sometimes helpful NPCs, but I mean, some of the, you know, even in like Dark Souls 1, it's undead merchants, you know, they're all dead. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's interesting to, to kind of have that feeling of you're the last stand. And for Bloodborne, it kind of seems like you're just, you just happen to be there, you know? There's that that sense of um, dread that you know you just become a part of something bigger that's about to just blow off, you know, take off. While like we've been saying, you know, Dark Souls, it's just like I'm coming into the end of this, and I feel very much alone. Um, but with Bloodborne, there's so much interaction with NPCs and people at the church, um, and the dude shooting the machine gun at you. You know, it's Jera. There's, yeah. there's a lot of like external things that do kind of have an influence about how the you play and also how the game kind of plays out totally all right what's next on the docket gentlemen what do you guys want to talk about now caleb i think i liked your direction so what direction should we go now you know maybe maybe start back where we began and just like what this game meant uh at the time and and how it was received um i know that's you know usually more of a you know from the top sort of category but i think that it we um, went right into to lore lore porn, which we were all for. <laughs> uh, you know, a circle back, if you will, just uh, you know the bigger picture of what Bloodborne means. Even though none of us played it on the release date in 2015, but we all were certainly playing games back then, and we were right. very much uh, attuned to pop culture. And uh, you know, sort of looking back and seeing what's come since then, and, and how important I think it is. That it is a council-only game, and it's the only one um, that is. Yeah, uh, going, uh, Go ahead. Going off that idea, um, talk, going back to the time of 2015, 2016, when it just came out, um, I want to shout out all of the huge minds, Redgrave, uh, Jerksons Frontiers, JSF, who now goes by Sophie, um, Sinclair lore, many others that have helped my understanding significantly without their like uh, keen observations and thorough research in in the case of Redgrave, an entire 119 page, I believe essay called the Pale Blood Hunt, which I think everyone should read if they're really interested in the lore. Um, without their insights at the time of release, I'm talking like they were they picked up the game after release and three days later they had all these crazy ideas you know so i'm still going back to these old ideas and picking through writing notes and getting 
you know, filling out my understanding more and more. So without them, uh, you know, I would still be uh, suffering with my beastly idiocy. Um, Reed, you know, th you this is your most recent FromSoft game. Um, how do you feel about the significance after playing it your first time? Yeah, I can, again, it's really difficult for me to judge that because I've beaten, I don't want to say I'm obviously a veteran because I haven't played through New Game 8 or whatever, you know, I, I, <laughs> I feel that with a lot of these games, they are becoming one of my favorite franchises now. Um, and playing Bloodborne so late, I think, after Elden Ring, it's kind of hard to judge it because I, I still think it's excellent. Um, I can understand 100% why this is a lot of people's favorite and why they're clamoring for more and like the community is still pretty active. Um, I was really turned on to it because not only because of my conversations with you guys, but also seeing like the speedrunning community doing a lot of this sort of stuff too. And like, oh man, that, you know, maybe I should get back into that because they get past Central Yarnum and they get into the newer territories or areas and all like that. See that. Um, you know, I, I do see the impact of it and I can sort of see why people have become so. Um, obsessed with it and kind of entranced by it because it is a very, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, it's one of the most memorable atmospheres and the soundtrack is just phenomenal. Maybe we can kind of talk yes. about that next soundtrack, but uh, overall yes. it's hard to kind of rank the Souls games for me. Like people always say like rank your favorite of this and that. Like I'm always going to say Dark Souls 3 is my favorite because it is my first, you know, it's your first baby, right? You know, it's, mm. it's the first mm. one you kind of go through and they're all that's why I feel that right. way about Bloodborne. Right. In their own, in their own, own way, their, their own experiences. So, you know, playing Blood, Bloodborne is a lot different from playing Elden Ring. Um, Dark Souls 1 to Dark Souls 3, you know, that's... Yes, but there's kind of a debatable side. I mean, you know, it is its own series, right? And it mm -hmm. should hopefully feel that way. Dark Souls 2 is the, you know, beloved, hated, beloved, hated, you know, uh, stepchild of the series. But... Um, you know, I think it is an excellent game. I, I, I think it is, in terms of difficulty, if I was like Caleb kind of playing this off my first get-go, yeah, I can 100% understand being turned off by the series. But I think what we can probably all agree on is that these games have a larger meaning than just playing a game. It is a challenge to yourself as a player because, I don't know, I, I can't speak maybe for you guys, but as a person who's played video games for 30 plus years now, um, it's really easy, especially nowadays, to just get jaded on games and how the current industry of video games is going. That's one of the reasons I made this podcast was because I'm relatively unsatisfied by a lot of modern video games because it's a lot of the same mechanics. They're super expensive. It's a lot more um, cover appeal and aesthetics than it is actual true gameplay. So going to the Soulsborne series, um, you get everything. You know, you get that feeling like you were a kid playing game, games for the first time. Totally. And there's that challenge and that, uh, that, that feeling of, you know, dopamine release when you beat that boss finally. And, you know, I mentioned this in chat and I don't mind sharing it, but going through the Souls games, especially Dark Souls 3, I was going through a really difficult time in my life. And that was a really well-needed challenge to kind of get myself out of that mental rut. And mm -hmm. I did so because it, it's not only just me playing a game and just kind of disconnecting from it and zoning out and you know, just playing through something. It was doing different strategies, looking at tutorials online about how to get this weapon or something. It's this whole world, you know, and I think that's what's so appealing about all these games. For all of their, again, I, I think we should put a 
a nice little caveat in saying I don't think any of these games are 100% perfect. There's obviously some jank, but, um, you know... Overall, Miyazaki would admit it much, too. He has an interview. <laughs> we, should, we should certainly touch on that, especially with Bloodborne. Uh, yeah, we'll, so, we'll, yeah, we'll... I'm going to get off my little, my little podium here. But, yes, uh, to answer your question, I did really enjoy my Bloodborne play. Um, and I did have... I, my save file is right before fighting the moon present so i can go back and do some some of the chalice stuff which i never really got around to doing um so yeah that's my oh, uh, question pro tip uh chalice dungeon uh data goes from new game plus so all of your progress remains the same so no okay. worries on that okay. yep so but um anything else we uh, to say before we talk about the jank um talking about the jank you, you wanted to talk about the soundtrack yes sure um Dude. Jake or soundtrack first? Let's do soundtrack. That was yeah. first in the queue. Um, so I, I gotta say, Lullaby for Mergo is probably my favorite song in any of these games, and it's the um, the music box song that Gascoigne's daughter has. Dun da dun 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 da dun. You know, it's just this little like plucked instrument. Not plucked. How how would I say like? I don't even know the name of the instrument, but it's just this really simple melody, but it's just the most haunting piece by uh, Ryan Amon. I have his name up. I, I forgot a lot of the uh, composers. But yeah, props to him. What's your uh, favorite themes, boys, soundtrack? Um, I don't know if I have one directly. I don't know the names of it offhand. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. the boss themes in all of these games are just like fire. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, the the whole the orchestral chant uh, orchestral <laughs> the choir chants and stuff like that like it really goes hard. Did you know yeah. that in Latin it's actually it, like the chorus chants and all of that the Gregorian stuff that's all Latin lyrics for kind of insight into what is happening in the game. I don't have any examples off the top, but that's another rabbit hole you can research yourself. Yeah, oh, check it wow. out. Yep, that's cool. I, I really like, you know, I agree. The music box, especially because it's, it's um, you know, Father Gascoigne and it's the first big pivotal boss that you fight uh, is, is, is definitely up there. But also just the sound effects in general, um, the mm, mechanics of sound the design with the, yeah. Yeah, the sound design, the choices, the messenger bath. Uh, the, the messenger bath and, and the skeletons, you know, and like the noises they make when you interact with them. And it's almost like slightly friendly, but also slightly terrifying in an already terrifying enough game. Um, you know, I like that you mentioned that because it kind of gives insight into maybe what the messengers might mean in a not so good way. But continue on. Right. It's like it's like I can't make it out, but like it's, it's ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, you know, all the games do dialogue really well, but, uh, you know, hearing the howling coming from some of the, uh, people from the houses after it's very clear, they've completely become overtaken. The blood men. Uh, yeah. Just laughing too. And the, oh, and the hysterical laughing is like literal terrifying. It, 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 it's absolutely insane. Um, you know, are you one of them hunters? Get off then. Like, you know, it's like, you know, the mean people and, um, it's just, it's, it's really unsettling. It's, they hit it spot on. And, you know, the only other, uh, you know, game I could com- like 
maybe uh, put it against would be Dark Souls 1 with the character creation uh, music. Otherwise, I think Bloodborne is... Top five for show. Uh, Bloodborne, Elden Ring, Dark Souls 1, as far as best music, in my opinion. I want to touch on, real quick, uh, the points where there is no soundtrack, and that's Mm. just as effective. There's just this wash of background noise, this haunting, like atmosphere and it's really important in these games and all of them this this uh non-instrumental uh parts of the game that speak just as loudly as the the instrumental parts and it, and it allows breathing room for when the boss hits and that boss theme hits it gives it new life and it gives it this energy that would have otherwise been kind of undermined by a, a constant soundtrack so yeah uh keep that in mind yeah and i'll also kind of admit my own cowardice though because after a while i kind of turned down some of the sound effects i didn't mute it or anything but like especially around fighting cleric beasts just constantly screaming yeah yeah and, uh, <laughs> dude the, the crows oh my god like yeah and the dogs uh like yeah it's it's it half of i mean honestly there'd be times where i'd be just kind of farming for echoes or you know whatever and i would have it not muted but really low listening to something else and like realizing that that does take away a lot of the horror atmosphere of this too obviously mm-hmm. the environments are dreadful um rightfully so but the, the music the whole sound team from both sound effects to ambience to soundtrack is just you know it, it just amplifies everything up so dramatically hell yeah yeah i i do think that Again, uh, that that first act, or like you know that that first big Russian doll that we're opening up, uh, definitely is the most jarring. I, I would say that perhaps the game does concede a little bit of horror for the sake of furthering the plot in the cosmic way later, um, which is not a bad thing. And I kind of like that you know we're able to sort of get over that. I don't. I think it would be nearly impossible to keep a game absolutely terrifying for the 80 hours or whatever it is to to play through the entire thing plus dlc um i may have just told on myself for taking too long but anyway (laughs) um you know i do like that the palette changes later on i like that things like you know i like that it it, it's like this is a horror movie it's still going to be unsettling and never like happy throughout the entire thing but, you know, you start to have different focuses later on and at least like gives you a little bit of a reprieve from uh, just being absolutely terrified. And plus, just going through reps uh, also helps. I was reading something interesting, but uh, I think that it's actually probably more appropriate to crib in uh, the next topic we're going to talk about. So I'll, I'll save that. Okay. Before you do, I, I like that you say Russian doll and you set it off uh, off recording off air. But uh the fact that the doll in this game is voiced by, I'm probably going to butcher her name, Aveda Muradisotlova. Um, I believe she's she is incredible. Russian herself. She's an amazing voice actress. And uh, I, I wonder if uh, some thought went into that picking. But uh, she's also the Maiden in Black voice actress from Demon Souls. So it, it could just be mere coincidence. But with Miyazaki, I, I don't know. I think it's all uh, meaningful. <laughs> she's an incredible incredible voice actress and like actually like nearly brings me to tears in a couple of different dialogues in the first playthrough at least yeah yeah i think as we kind of get into the jank side of things um just kind of what you were saying caleb about how 
tremendously oppressive the sound is at the beginning of the game. It's kind of like a boot camp. I think, you know, sonically and gameplay-wise, the like I had said before, my first experience with the game was the first two bosses. That was my understanding of the game. Everything's going to be like this. Everything's going to always be like this. It's going to be loud in your face all of the time. And essentially what boot camp does is it just kind of breaks you down and then it kind of prepares you for what's kind of coming ahead. And I think... Um, from a gameplay standpoint and from an audiovisual standpoint, once you can kind of bypass that and deal with that, you can kind of deal with the rest of the game. Because I felt um, a lot of the, I don't want to say a lot of the challenge, but a lot of the challenge was in the first go through of the first couple of bosses. And then after that, I don't want to say it was smooth sailing, obviously not. But once you're conditioned for it, I think you're a lot more capable of overcoming it. It gets meta too, and and m- the mechanics of the game uh, reflect the lore. So what you were saying is that the first few of bosses feel the hardest, and then once you get into your stride, like you know everything clicks and it becomes easier. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something meta going on as far as like the power that you're getting from the blood, aka leveling up. Um, you're getting closer to becoming a great one yourself, you know? So there's this progression and reflection lore-wise that's just completely brilliant. And, and it's it's uh, seen in multiple game mechanics uh, throughout. And uh, just the level of thought that goes into um, the, the meaning behind everything it cannot be understated or over, overstated, excuse me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of game mechanics, let's open up that jar of jank, shall we, boys? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So what, what are the, some of the major issues that you kind of ran into, Joe? <sighs> See, I, I have rose-tinted glasses with this game. Not only is it my first, it's probably, probably my favorite game ever. I, I say that, you know, like any person saying, this is my favorite thing ever as an adult. But, um... I think it's better that maybe you start read because you this is your first uh, experience uh, with the game most recently. So I want to hear what you have to say first. Yeah, and I can sprinkle on after, and I will too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So jank wise, I think um, largely the camera that was like the biggest thing for me is just some mm-hmm. of the bosses, and this kind of goes with a lot of the Souls game is like sometimes your camera is your best friend and your worst friend. Um, so, you know, playing around on a boss and, like, the camera kind of getting stuck at a certain angle was always kind of a, a pain. So sometimes you just unlock and just kind of freewheel it. Um, what else? Mm-hmm. I mean, not really a jank side of things, but there was just some times where you're playing through a, a zone and you think you cleared an enemy and you're kind of looking for loot. And all of a sudden you get suddenly surprised in the back by someone and that always freaked me out. Um <laughs> Does it, does this, I forget, um, when you lock onto someone, does this have like the, you can flick the stick and it'll turn to the next enemy? I don't, can you turn that on or off? I forget. But, you probably can, but I usually go by default settings because I'm just too lazy to change it. Yeah, so I, because maybe that's just like a, a, um, a convenience that I was used to playing Elden Ring for so long. It's just flicking from person to person, but, so I guess the camera could be kind of a, a janky issue. I think the hit detection is pretty solid for the most part. Um, you know, I've heard horror stories about other Souls games and their hit detection, namely Dark Souls 2. Um, I felt that, yeah, I think overall the, I'm not a very good parrier. Um, 
but using the gun in this game, and and I was thinking to myself too, is this the first or and only Souls game where they actually have firearms, or is it in Sekiro you have some sort of gun arm attachment thing? Is that how that works? You have like explosive technology in Sekiro, well, but yeah, no, firearms. no, exactly, not Victorian and, era stuff. Yeah, and going back to gameplay stuff, then if you're not familiar with the game, um, the use of firearms, and there's lots of different ones. There's like flamethrowers and blunderbusses, and a lot of different firearms that you can use. Um, and it really depends. I think that the jankiness that I experienced too is like I, you, you do a pistol shot, thinking that you would be a hundred percent a critical to set up for a visceral attack and it wouldn't um and you know in the beginning of the game there's those two trolls that you can essentially use to farm that that skill and you'd think you just have this flow and rhythm to it and it just wouldn't work all the time and i would say overall i got used to it and there was some situations where like i said you think you're gonna 100 get that get that parry shot and then sometimes where you're just kind of fi- uh, you know firing blindly because you're stuck in a corner and you don't think mm-hmm. any of them are going to hit, but they do. And it's like, I don't know. That was, I think, the camera and, and the, the firearm parry was always kind of a toss-up for me. I feel that. Yeah, especially on stairs, dude. Oh, my God. Different terrain elevations is a mm-hmm. nightmare in this game. Yep. And, and you, you get the shot, you get the parry, and you can't take the visceral. You are screaming, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's just... The minor nitpicks, I would say. Yeah. I want to clear a misconception if anyone is a new player. The idea of guns as being super powerful um, is not the case in Bloodborne, and there there is lore significance to that. Um, in this game, we mentioned Mercury before, and Mercury creates Quicksilver, is Quicksilver, excuse me, and Quicksilver makes your bullets. And so you are mixing your tainted blood to make bullets for your firearms and your other consumable uh, weapons. And what that means is you need to level up the, basically how I view it, the blood tinges your, the, the concentration of corruption in your blood. So the higher your blood tinge, the higher the, the concentration of corruption in your blood is, the more effective your firearms are. So if you want a firearm-based character, go for blood tinge and then you'll be rewarded with high damage from that just want to clear that up sure and caleb you said you were going to say something there oh um yeah i exactly agree with with joe i i had it took me some growing pains uh to accept the power of the gun um you know especially going with the blunderbuss first which is uh that's a that's a tough choice uh if if you're gonna do that i agree right away i uh, promptly uh, changed a pistol later, which meant that I just, you know, set myself back a level. Uh, Still my that. favorite. Um, mm-hmm. uh, with the same character. Um, and I've yet to... I, I would love to uh, get get a little better grip on the blunderbuss, maybe with my next build. But uh, as far as, like, you know, the mechanics and stuff, you know, here's the thing. The game was made in 2015, so we can't forget that. Um, you know, we, we can go back in time to a lot of games. Uh, and, and and pick nits, but uh, you know there are some there are some funnies, and you know to me it's actually thinking about stuff like co-op. Um, oh, co-op and Bloodborne. Glad you brought it up. So detailed, and it's like, well, first you got to do this, and then you know, I I honestly don't. It doesn't seem that much better and and and, and uh, more 
uh, precise than just using co-op in Dark Souls 1 remastered, which is hilarious. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's tough. Uh, it, it, it makes it funny. It also makes invasions funny too. Um, and it, it's, it's a lovable quirk. Um, but, you know, having gone through it, uh, playing with Joe, uh, with our Cask and Furio, uh, duo, like there were some <laughs> moments where, you know, like go and walk around, walk the dogs real quick and we'll see if like someone can get summoned by the bell. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. Maybe we'll get in. Yeah. But it actually makes, you know, the stakes that much higher too. Like we really did not want to die. You <laughs> Let's know? beat this boss. Yeah. yeah. Like having played Elden, Elden Ring on the PS5 with some friends, uh, you know, you die, whatever. I'll, I'll be back in 20 yeah, seconds. Exactly. Like, Loading screens are pretty obsolete nowadays, uh, thanks to technology and, you know, um, with the PS4 and, and Bloodborne, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it actually raises the stakes of like how aggressive you want to play too. And it, it literally curbs your playing style and stuff. Cause it's like, I don't know if I'm going to find you again. Uh, you know, <laughs> and it's, uh, it's quite interesting. It also makes invasions in turn very kind of funny and random too. Um, it's, it, it, to me, it's kind of a lovable quirk, but it's certainly you, you, once you switch to Dark Souls three, like I did, it's like oh my god, now it's hard this to go back. Is co-op. Yeah, like it's like Anakin mm-hmm. Skywalker. Like now this is pod racing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, it's it's Anakin. really a shame. Uh, hello, it's really a shame that um, that multiplayer co-oping and invading is kind of stuck behind this um convoluted system while flavorfully awesome for the lore ringing bells that were found deep within the tomb of the gods it all has this lore significance but as far as like enjoyability and connecting with people that you want to play with etc it's a nightmare (laughs) haha you know maybe maybe that's what they were going for i don't know intended yeah pun intended right so, and one thing that I will say, I don't want to say brings Bloodborne down in my rankings overall is, from my understanding, this game doesn't really offer the abil- uh, ability to kind of have different play styles. It's mainly just aggressive and go. Yeah, different weapons have different effects and art and stuff like that. And like just the function of the the changing the different forms of the weapon is amazing. I think that's incredible. trick weapons, man. Trick yeah. weapons, yeah. Um, you know, I think it'd be interesting, or I wonder how, because in other Souls games, with the exception of Sekiro, you can make different builds. You can have a magic build. You can have a, a swift thief build. You can have a tank build. Um, in this game, like, armor is less important. There's no shields. And, you, like I said, there are different weapons, but the play styles are a lot more limited than the other games, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. A bit mm-hmm. more homogenous. More homogenous, yeah. yeah. And that's the thing, you are role-playing a hunter. Mm-hmm. And yes, there is variance in what that means, but overall, you are wielding a firearm, you are wielding a trick weapon. That That's the bread and butter of the game, and they designed the entire uh, fighting system on that. A very big departure from uh, Dark Souls 1, for example. And it is interesting that it was received so well, because this game did get very positive acclaim when it came out, you know, games mm-hmm. of the year, I'm sure... Um, and they did, still, yep. yeah, and still one of the most, one of the more popular, uh, like if you, if you just went on Google, I'm sure and typed in, you know, top video games of the last 10 years, this is going to be in the top 10. 100%. It's a biggie. 
Yeah. Yep. So even that stylistic change to being you're a hunter, you're a hunter, um, you know, it was received pretty well. And I, I think it's a great style of play. And if it's something where maybe even some people that were maybe dissuaded by the relative slowness of Dark Souls 1 would be like, oh, this one's a bit more faster paced. Maybe I'll actually give this a try. You know what I mean? Because um, mm-hmm. it's, oh, it's got guns, bro. I don't know. You know, there <laughs> might be some people that would be pulled onto that. <laughs> Until they're like, wait, why is my headshot not KOing this person? But uh, <laughs> Three Why am I frenzying? I'm What's going on 20, right now? 2015 uh, PS4 games that came out, and it wasn't exactly a strong year. You know, Witcher 3, uh, Metal Gear Solid, Phantom Pain, uh and 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 not a lot else like sure uh mortal Kombat, um but you know fallout 4 is i guess the biggest game that came out that year uh but it wasn't exactly a i guess what i'm saying uh this this renaissance of gaming so you know i do feel like in some years uh bloodborne may have been like pushed down a little bit more so the fact that it you know didn't just become like uh you know uh, like a cult game uh after the fact and it actually did have some like buyers right off the bat it probably has to do with like the state of games at the time i i, I don't mean that to criticize bloodborne I, I mean that more to criticize you know uh like what, what gamers wanted back then uh but um you know i'm glad that it has you know continued to um you know clearly uh, maintain a lot of acclaim because if you do go on, the servers are still up and, and you will be invaded. It might take uh, a certain amount of time, but um, it it did come out at a very interesting time and I'm glad that it did because maybe with that, it sort of, you know, propelled Miyazaki to, you know, push through quickly with Dark Souls 3 after, um, mm-hmm. you know, while they were in development at the same time. Isn't that wild, dude? Dark Souls 3 and Bloodborne were in the same development period. Yeah. Um, I also think it's cool that Bloodborne was, you know, PlayStation only. Uh, what else had been that at that point? Like uh, Journey? Like, ser- or Who knows? What, what was the name of that game uh, that, that came out that came with the PlayStation? Like, there wasn't a lot. Um, so, you know, it, it certainly has to be up there as like one of the best PlayStation originals, right? Like, what else can you say competes with it? Well, and it came out, you know, what, the, the PS4 came out, what, 2014? And then this came out, you know, within the year of it coming out. And, yeah, it would be, it would have been a main, it would have been, a, I don't want to say a seller for a lot of people, but it would solidify, I think, the PS4. And I think it, for a lot of people, brought the FromSoft games into more of a mainstream appeal. Obviously, Elden Ring has really blown that off, you know, Rightfully blown, so. Rightfully so. Blown the lid off of uh, how awesome FromSoft games are, but I think Bloodborne was absolutely detrimental to to that development because I think if they um, FromSoft only ever released Demon Souls and then Dark Souls one, two, and three, it would probably still be in the realm of you know niche games. Um, I think with the um, diversity of Bloodborne and Sekiro and now Elden Ring, which is kind of an amalgamation of a lot of those other things, they're able to kind of gain more foothold in the modern gaming scene, I think. And and that's the best thing, man. Like, FromSoft winning is all of us winning because, you know, 
like we were talking about before, the status quo of just like these AAA titles, but they just they go nowhere. They're just like uh, vapid uh, Hollywood excess, you know. And we're getting true, true art, I believe, from the From Software games. So uh, I, I wish them the, the the motherfucking best, and they deserve it. So another thing we kind of talked about um, in our text chain was how some of these things, again, being a Japanese-developed game, sort of gets kind of lost in translation in our, I, I suppose, our resident expert on you know these lost translations from Japanese to English, Joe, um, kind of mentioned some of those things here. So Joe, can you kind of tell us some of those things that were sort of lost in translation from Japanese to English? Well... I'm sorry, my, my dog Lawrence is barking, and yes, Lawrence is named after a character in Bloodborne. Um, let me get back to what I was thinking. So, I am no expert, but I will tell you, I will plug a friend that is an expert. His name is Last Protagonist on YouTube. Go find him. He's a much better Japanese speaker than me, and he's thoroughly dissected these games. So, I, I want to make a quick plug to uh, for uh, Last Protagonist. Um, what I want to mention from my, you know, surface level understanding is that you'll find with these games that a lot of your understanding is naturally through text because there are not a lot of dialogues, uh, with characters, uh, they're unreliable in some cases. Jesus, Lawrence, stop. Um, so we're depending on the localization and translations of item descriptions for most of our understanding of these games and the lore that and all of the history that we uh, don't even experience in the game itself as a player. So um, it comes down to nitpicking details, and I just want to make it clear that uh, the an extra layer to the very nebulous nature of the lore is that it is translated from Japanese into English. But you have to understand that um, most of it, if not 99.9% of it, is all intentional detail. Um, so I, I really... Um, I, I just want to encourage that you, you pick apart the pieces and then you you try to find um, alternate sources that can uh, clarify some of the Japanese for you. Are there any examples that you know offhand of things that might have been have deeper meaning? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um, so one of the big things, and this is uh, going off last protagonist work, um, is uh, blood echoes. And that term, blood echoes, is really, it's, it's a strange term in English. It really is. Um, but it's much more clear in the Japanese. So in Japanese, it's called ano, chi no ishi. So chi is blood. And then ishi is a kind of a loaded term. Um, and it's also a play in words in Japanese. It's a, it's a homonym. Um, the first meaning, um, let me think if I can recall it. It's like the the dying wishes of blood is how it translates and then another reading is like um instead of dying will if you change the characters the chinese characters it can also mean um the the willpower so not only dying will and testament but the willpower of blood 
So you can you get this much clearer image, and it's a much stronger image than the kind of uh, obscure uh, blood echoes that we get in the English translation. So it's not like the literal an echo of something. It actually has sort of like a philosophical meaning to it. Totally, and that's that's all linked into the Shintoist Buddhist uh, the Japanese culture of the game. Oh, but yeah, that is a huge. Yeah. <laughs> I can see why that's. Uh, yeah. Wow, that's great. Yeah, it's it's deep. Another example, real quick. It's kind of a big one, but um, it ties into a lot of major ideas within uh, Buddhism and Shintoism. Is the enemy? I think we all know the one enemy. It's a it's a singing, humming enemy, and it it is a giant bloated head with eyes all over it. And it appears to have the body of the doll in the dream. Um, it, this is called a winter lantern in the English translation. And I don't know about y'all guys, but winter lantern doesn't really connect with anything in my American understanding. How about you guys? Yeah, that is a really strange. Is it like a? It's like a really, like when when, when I saw like the wiki depiction of it, I'm like, what does that even mean? Is it like a exactly or something? It makes it so, scarier. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> so, in the Japanese, it translates as hozuki. And he- here's a can of worms, man. Hozuki is this plant. In English, it's roughly translated as ground cherry, but it can also be translated as winter lantern in its different uses. Okay. Um, and basically, hozuki is a plant with a fruit at the center of it and uh when it kind of sheds its orangish like leaf uh it becomes like this latest lantern looking with this like cherry-esque fruit in the center of it anyways what does it all mean a winter lantern is used in the festival bone the obon festival in uh japanese culture and Obon is basically a similar to kind of like the Day of the Dead. Okay, so it's like in Obon, it's and you know I'm I'm really really like abridging the whole meaning of it, but Obon essentially is the day or week in August where spirits of the dead visit home again, and it is the job of the families to kind of put their the spirits of their dead, the ancestors, at rest by offering food and different uh, festivities, etc., and to send them off back into the the spiritual world. So you can imagine how this might, uh, you know, go very well into Bloodborne uh, lore and gameplay. So there's that meaning of Hozuki. Also, Hozuki the is supposedly it makes a doll. <laughs> And, uh, like, in Japanese culture, you can make a doll out of this. Traditionally, you can make a doll out of this fruit and plant. And, well, in the in the nightmare, it is a depiction of the doll that we know from the dream, but this horrific version of it, right? And the last meaning that I was so excited to find, I found this random blog post when I was researching ground cherries, Google searching ground cherries, and in this random blog post, a Japanese uh, creator, he said, uh, they said, excuse me, that 
ground cherries were used in kind of like ancient Japan at, to instill uh, miscarriages. They were taken by women to uh, for the result of a miscarriage. And that made my mind go crazy, like I was about to fucking frenzy. Uh, I don't exactly know what that means, but you know that it had to be considered by Miyazaki in the creation of this. Yeah. Um, so it, it gets so dense with detail, and it's, it's just super exciting to find something like that on your own, you know? Yeah, I mean, wow, it's yeah, just amazing hearing these sort of the texture of this whole game. Is yes. You just kind of play through a lot of this stuff and see these creatures and not fully understanding the meaning and methodology behind like why they got named way the certain ways that they did it's incredible really it's incredible yep all right what are we thinking boys i think uh this has been a wonderful conversation with uh two friends and i'm glad that we talked about a game that uh means a lot to me i know it means a lot to all of us um like i said it was uh it was a quarantine uh, first playthrough for me um so clearly just given the time and, and the mindset it was uh it was a challenge that uh, was very welcome and uh you know as much as we hinted at you know sort of the uh, uh suffering as inevitable uh sort of motifs of the game i i do think that uh the joy uh gotten from it uh does not subside it's it's absolutely fantastic um totally yeah 100 percent agree well ladies and gentlemen i think that is going to wrap us up for now um we've kind of talked a little bit off off mic here about kind of continuing this along um possibly doing this as a a, a reprisal when we kind of come to a future episode on elden ring which i think we're going to do so, I mean, there's so much here that we can kind of jump into. There's so much lore and there's so many different um, petals to pick, so to speak, if we're on the, on the topic of uh, flowers and fruit. But, I mean, there's so much with this game that I think it's it's so great that we can kind of bond over these things. Uh, and once again, I really want to thank you guys for kind of coming on and doing this with me. It's been really uh, refreshing for me, you know, as, as a host to kind of get different perspectives other than my own, my normal co-host, to kind of see you know, how people and why people love the games that we're, we're into. So again, you know, offhandedly, I just totally want to thank you guys for kind of coming on. It's been an absolute joy for me to do this. My pleasure, man. Um, you really kicked off my, you reignited my fires. You rekindled me. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's, the so, most, that's the most you can do, I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm going deep into my lore diving again. And I haven't done it since probably 2018, so perhaps the next time that we uh, we do this, uh, if we talk Bloodborne, I'll, I'll have a more fleshed out uh, theory that uh, is probably more lucid as well. But sure, uh, uh, thank sure you for we'll, letting me spitball. Yeah, I'm sure we'll ring the bells again soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Love let's, it. Let's get on co-op here for your uh, DLC run raid, and yeah. uh, maybe we'll maybe That'd be we'll sweet. revisit this sometime in 2023 amongst uh, some other Souls games. Absolutely. Hell yeah. So uh, again, I'm also all always for plugs, you know, from content creator to content creator. Joe, do you want to just tell us a little bit about um, the music that you do and how that uh, these games have kind of impacted that too, and kind of kind of tell people where they can kind of find your stuff too? 
Thanks, man. Um, yeah, so Bloodborne not only is just a video game interest, but it, it extends to my reality. Uh, my dog's name is Lawrence, but uh, before that, I, I'm known as uh, Sickly Spirit, and that's actually taken from a line from the doll in Bloodborne. And Sickly Spirit is one of my producer handles, my artist names. And uh, on... And uh, on SoundCloud, yeah, SoundCloud, you can you can find some of my work. Um, otherwise, Bandcamp. I run a label called No Catharsis, and I release uh, mine and other friends' music who are also very into these games. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, I'll definitely uh, definitely include a plug for that stuff in all of my notes here too. So appreciate it, man. Yeah. So unless you guys have any other final conclusions, I think we can wrap it up just for now. I'm sure we will kind of come back to this on a further future date Would uh, love to. kale c-a-l-e 7816 for any uh youtube youtubers out there youtube uh, you can see um my green ass uh, get murdered in uh <laughs> various uh uh from soft games including uh co-oping with joe in bloodborne do you guys have do you guys do like i know uh joe you do the twitch stuff don't you I used to, but I've since become a father, and uh, you know, time is limited now. But uh, you can imagine how childbirth has reinstilled my passion for Bloodborne. Yeah, you, so. you burned the earth tree, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Multiple times. All right. So that being said, <laughs> so that being said, we're gonna wrap up for tonight. It's almost let's see, one fifteen in the morning for me. So again, we appreciate you guys coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm sure we're going to have more bonfire chats uh, in the future. So again, this is Reed Jolin signing off for Page to Pixel. Join with my dear friends Joe and Caleb. So happy to have you guys on board. Um, Thank check you. Us out. Yeah, Thanks. check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you guys get your podcasts. And we will see you next time. Bon Oh, my God.